0: Have you been following what's been happening in the world this week? Uh, Paying attention to what's been going on around us. Consider some of the, the top headlines from the leading publications nationwide. The Washington Post reported alleged assailants filled blog posts with delusional thoughts in days before Pelosi attack. Or from the New York Times, Kanye West faces costly fallout. With the subtitle, the entertainer has been widely condemned for a series of anti-Semitic comments. Or Forbes magazine reporting on Elon Musk takeover of Twitter. Sharing the headline, billionaire Elon Musk says he won't let Twitter become a free-for-all hellscape where anything can be said with no consequences. You notice a common theme in all those headlines? The incredible effect of words. They can cause all kinds of harm to other people to personal fortunes, to reputations, to a company's value. Words can create, in the words of a mega billionaire, a free-for-all hellscape where everyone is invited in to share whatever's on your mind. But be careful because there's always consequences. The news publications this week remind us of that. But this morning, we'll look to a more time-tested, more authoritative source to cast light on what words do. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to James chapter 3. James chapter 3, and as we continue our study through the letter of James, written over 2,000 years ago, This morning, we look at the first 12 verses of chapter 3, as the Lord instructs us from his word. James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. James says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, He is a perfect man, able also to bridle his own, his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member. Yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, painting the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird. A reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil. It's always a work. It is full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. One of the things James is meaning to do throughout this book is to give us an idea of practical religion. One that produces some things. In James' mind, when someone says they're a Christian, it's supposed to count for something. That claim is supposed to show up in your life. So we saw pretty explicitly Last week, James said that faith without works is dead. Well, in this passage that we just read, James takes that same kind of theme and, and narrows it down a little bit to make the point that faith without words is also dead. That is, James uses words here, a, a person's speech, as a barometer to show how real how genuine their faith is. Show me someone who says they're a Christian, and what they say, how they speak should prove it. So here's what I think is James's main point in this passage as he warns and instructs us about the tongue, the main point of the sermon. Tame your tongue, or it will take you to hell. Pretty simply, tame your tongue or it will take you to hell. If we study this passage together, we'll notice a few features that we see in the text. So three points to the sermon. Number one, we'll see a warning about the tongue's impact. A warning about the tongue's impact. We see that in verses one and two. Point number two, we see a display of the tongue's power. We see that in verses three through eight. And number three, we see a tension in the tongue's use. We see that in verses nine through 12. So a warning about the tongue's impact, a display of the tongue's power, and a tension in the tongue's use. Number one, we see a warning about the tongue's impact. James, in talking about the tongue here, starts with a specific set of people before broadening out his point to apply to the whole body of believers. He begins with the warning that not many of you should become teachers. It seems James is responding to a specific issue that's arisen, one where people are too highly prizing positions while too lowly considering the qualifications and the high callings of that position. The role of teacher was one of esteem. It came with privileges and power, the kind of privileges and power that people naturally want. Well, what kind of teacher is James talking about here? Well, not just any kind of teacher. James isn't simply talking about school teachers, about educational teachers, valuable as they are. What James has in mind here are spiritual teachers, teachers of God's word. You'll notice that James includes himself in this group of teachers. He says in the latter half of verse one, we who teach. James was an apostle and a pastor of a local church. He was a teacher of God's word. And James singles out teachers here in verse one because of that responsibility, because of the weightiness of that task. You want the title, the recognition, but have you considered what's required of teachers? There's a greater expectation, greater accountability, greater judgments by God. James says you need to know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. First, just stop and consider the weightiness of that. I think many of us go through our days with little consideration of the divine consequences of our actions. We either live for ourselves, doing and saying what we please as if we're our own judge. Or we live and speak to please other people, setting them up as the ultimate judges of our character and our conduct. But James here wants to wake us up wants to remind us, wants us to know that there is a future judgment coming. We will all be judged by God. Yes, there is greater judgment for teachers, but that simply implies that there is still judgment for all people. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I wonder how well you've prepared for the future. I'm not talking about how much you have put away in your savings account or put aside in your retirement plan. I wonder, have you given thought to the fact that one day soon you will stand before the holy and righteous God of the universe who made you to love and live for him and you will have to give an account for every single thing you've ever done and ever thought and ever said. And apart from Jesus, you will have to bear the eternal consequences for every single thoughts and deed and word that has been sinful. If you're a Christian, you, you can look to the judgment day with, with hope and not dread. Because you know that Jesus Christ has been judged in your place. And through trust in him, you've been declared righteous in God's sight. But saints, we'll still stand before the judgment seat of God, even as Christians. And we will have to give an account for the way we've lived, for the works we've done. Having trusted in Christ as the foundation of our lives, have we built upon that foundation with worthy things? If Jesus is precious to you, Have you built upon his precious work with your precious work and with your precious words? Or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, have you built upon the precious foundation of Christ with wood and hay and straw? With deeds and words that act as if who Jesus is and what he's done isn't really all that incredible, all that valuable. Jesus sees. Jesus will judge. And again, teachers will face the greater judgment. Because of the greater responsibility we have, and in particular, the greater impact our words have. Notice in verse 2 how James specifies speech as one of the main ways that people stumble, that people sin. He says we all stumble in many ways. Friends, there is no one who does not sin. But James says that if someone does not stumble or fall, does not sin in what he says, he is a perfect or complete man, a mature man. That's the way the, that James used the word perfect back in chapter 1. He's able even to bridle his whole, his whole body. The tongue, in essence, is a barometer of all of life. Bridle that, control that, and you can control all the many other ways you're tempted to stumble, to sin. Teachers, pastors talk a lot. We stand up like what I'm doing right now and and in essence stand in the place of God speaking his word. Are we speaking it accurately, clear for his glory and not for our own glory? We counsel people throughout the week. Having been authorized by God to care for his flock, to shepherd his sheep. Are we wrongly using that authority? Demanding people to do things that God does not demand? Are we being overbearing with our words? Are we smoothing over sin with our smooth words? To keep friends or to prevent enemies? A teacher's task And the volume of words that he necessarily uses in that office places him in a position of greater reckoning before God. So saints, pray for your pastors. Pray for me and Warner that we would use our words well. That we control our speech considering that we will have to give an account to God. And know that as we pastor you, that we are mindful of that reality. So that's why we're willing to use our words and our times and our time to sometimes do and say some uncomfortable things. uh, To track you down if you're missing. uh, To pry in your life a little bit and ask questions about your marriage and about your parenting and about how you're doing spiritually about how you're doing with struggles, with lust, and with anger, and with laziness. Don't buck against our actions and our words. Listen to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. We have to give an account of how we do our work, of how we use our words as teachers. And saints, so do you, of how you respond to our work, how you respond with your words. So don't lie or deceive or tell half truth when we ask about your life, when we pry in and ask about your soul there is greater judgment for us with our words. But though lesser, there is also judgment for you for your words. James's point here is that your words have great spiritual impact. He uses pastors as a a specific example because of how many words they use, but it applies to all kinds of people. All people use words. Are you aware of the great impact they have? know that a constant drip of your words is making a trail to a future day of judgment. Your tongue is tied to eternity. Really? I, I mean, maybe James is overstating things here. Exaggerating some. I mean, you know how preachers can be. They're overly dramatizing everything, spiritualizing everything for big effect. Your words, your tongue can have that big of an impact? Well, let me show you, James says. Which leads to our second point where we see a display of the tongue's power. Point number two, a display of the tongue's power. You know, James would would ace kind of any preaching class that he'd take. He passed many preaching classes with flying colors because in many preaching classes, they teach you to make a point, to explain that point, and then to illustrate that point, to to get it across to your listeners. And James is a master at that. I mean, we've seen him do it often already in this book from from chapter one, where he illustrates a a hearer, but not a doer of the word in the form of a person who, who looks in the mirror and then leaves without addressing any of the flaws that the mirror just showed him that he had. To chapter 2's picture of partiality, where a rich man gets treated well when he comes into a church assembly with his gold and fine clothes on, while a poor man with shabby clothing gets rejected. And then James last week showed us a picture of faith without works in the form of someone simply telling a poor person to go be warmed and be filled without doing any of the things the the person needed that came to him. So now here in chapter 3 where James talks about the impact of the tongue. And starting in verse 3 he gives us an illustration of how such a small thing, such as the tongue, can have such amazing power. Look at the power that other small things have in ordinary life, James says. My friends, I hope when you read the Bible you make observations like that. You notice how passages are structured, are are organized. Uh, This book is from God through human authors who mean to make concrete arguments and who organize things in ways that are understandable and digestible and relatable. This is not a book of just random sayings thrown together with no coherence and no cohesion. This is God's Word that's given to us to understand And to obey so that we might live. And God so loves us that he, the almighty God, condescends to speak our language. To put things in forms that we can grasp. He gives commands and charges and illustrations like James here. Not merely to inform or entertain us, but to exhort us, to edify us to encourage us, to equip us, to live in the way he's created us to live. In verse 3, James first uses the illustration of how small things have great power by pointing to the land. Look at verse 3. James says, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. No, James isn't talking here about one of them little ponies that we had out front for the Back to School Festival in August. You know, they they small and cute and cuddly. They seem manageable. You know, seem like you can put one in your backyard if your little kid really desires it and if you can afford it. And no, James is talking here about a full-grown, strong-willed, wild horse like ones used to pull chariots in battle. I mean, have you have you stood next to a horse before? Like a full-grown horse? Them things are massive. Modest estimates. Well, the average weight of a horse is roughly 1,000 pounds. And depending on the breed, they can be much heavier than that. You mount one, and you immediately feel your smallness in comparison to this massive beast. Your safety is entirely in their hands. They're so much bigger than you. But little old you are able to guide that big old beast with putting a little old bit in its mouth. A bit is a bridle, it's a small piece of metal, no bigger than five or six inches, that, that you put in a horse's mouth that's attached to two straps. And when you pull up on those straps or pull to one side or another on those straps, pressure is applied to that bit in the horse's mouth, allowing you to move and maintain that horse's speed and direction. That little bit or bridle controls that horse's mouth and thus controls that entire horse. Now, James just said in verse two that if you are able to bridle, To put a bit into what you say, to bridle your tongue, you can bridle your whole body. You want to see how that looks? Look at the horse as an example. James transports us from this illustration of the horse on land and next takes us to the sea in the illustration in verse 4. He puts us on a large ship in the midst of strong winds on a stormy sea. The ship, like the horse on the land, is massive, massive. When you think about ship here, don't think of those little paddle boats that you can rent down at the Tidal Basin. Think of a naval ship, uh, the massive kind that moves large armies across the seas to go to battle. It's a very large ship. A couple of that with very strong winds and you have something in this illustration that is seemingly uncontrollable. But it's guided by one pilot, using a very small rudder or wheel. And notice how James notes the disproportionate size of things. The ship is so large, the winds so strong, the rudder very small. And yet that very small rudder has great power to turn that ship in whatever direction that the pilot wheels. Well, so also, James says in verse 5, to to complete the point, the tongue is a small member, a little piece of flesh, yet it boasts of great things. The tongue, which in proportion to the rest of your body, body is minuscule. I mean, look at your whole body in proportion to that little tongue. It's small, yet it holds amazing power. And what's noted specifically here is the tongue's amazing power to destroy. Notice the end of verse 5. James notes that a small fire in the forest, if not speedily handled and extinguished, sets the whole forest ablaze. What he says in verse 6, the tongue is a fire. That thing is flaming, and if you don't extinguish it quickly, if you don't control it quickly, it will scorch and ruin everything around you. It's a world of unrighteousness, James says. In other words, the tongue, the mouth, the speech represents something of the means through which all the evil in the world can be expressed. One commentator notes, every sinful human tongue is a mini-drama that, if observed long enough, expresses the countless unrighteous stories lived out in this fallen world. I mean, just consider all the, the senseless murders in our area. Every day we're hearing about just senseless murders, craziness going on, and we are right to express how wicked those are. But when you look at those sinful murders and see how wicked they are, First, look at their expression with the tongue. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool! will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus says the act of murder starts in the heart with anger and is expressed not merely with attacking someone with a weapon, but attacking someone with your words. Look to a murderer's mouth as a main motive to his actions. You know, the devaluing of a human life might ultimately end in taking someone else's life. But it first shows up by insulting another human being. Already devaluing their life by how you talk to them. As if they're lower than you. You, you fool. Sets a trail for you're dead. The tongue lashes out and has the power to affect your entire life. It pollutes the entire body. It scorches the course of life. Friends, that's how sin is. You cannot contain it. It spills out into all kinds of different directions. I mean, think about what David did. right? That, that, that sin of Bathsheba, he couldn't just keep that thing covered up. It showed itself in all kinds of different areas of life. That's how all of our sin is. Right? It's like spilling a gallon of milk and trying to wipe it up with one single bounty Towel cloth. All right, no matter what the commercials tell you, those things don't work that well. Right. You can't contain sin. And the tongue is one of the main expressions of sin. Now see how it summarizes all the many other facets of sin. See how it destroys everything. All right, just Just think of the many sins of the tongue. Foolishness flattery, filthiness, lewdness, cursing, slander, blasphemy, lying, gossiping, shaming, ridicule, and mockery, grumbling and complaining. And look at how they all lead to destruction. I mean, it was grumbling and complaining that led to God's judgment of the people of Israel in the wilderness, causing them to wander for 40 years and causing the deaths of of an entire generation for criticizing God's goodness and denying his power. It was the sin of lying that led to Ananias and Sapphira's death in Acts chapter 5. When they were dishonest, when they didn't have to be about how much they sold a piece of property for. But, you know, you can't contain lying. And Peter says that, I don't know why you lied. But know the consequences of it, you lied not simply to man, but to God. You think that these examples of the tongue's destructive power will lead us away from copycatting. But we, in the same way, are still guilty of the same sins of the tongue. I mean, consider the sin of foolish talk. Talking over and over and over about things that you have no absolute certainty about. And they don't hold any real value or profit to anyone anyway. In the books of 2 Timothy and Titus, Paul instructs the churches to have nothing to do with foolish controversies. To avoid using your words to quarrel about highly debatable things. Like genealogies and myths and other speculative things. Like conspiracy theories in our day. And yet many professing Christians today use their words to talk about these kinds of foolish things. Espousing views and viewpoints on everything from when the world is going to end. To what the government is really doing. To all other kinds of matters that you simply really don't know. It robs us from using our words to talk about the things that we really do know. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners like us. And that he's coming back soon to rescue those who trust in him and to wreck those who refuse him. It robs us. And it wrecks us. It wrecks us because something other than Jesus takes center stage in our thoughts and in our words. And it wrecks those around you. I mean, this kind of foolish talk makes your viewpoints become the standard for real fellowship. And anyone who doesn't share your viewpoints, who doesn't speak like you speak, becomes an instant enemy. So many families, so many churches have been torn apart by people promoting things as absolutes that the scriptures do not prioritize. By people refusing to fellowship with people who don't agree with them. Or their viewpoints. Or consider the, the sin of gossiping. We've heard that a number of times already in some of the prayers mentioned. right? Gossiping affects you and others. It makes it impossible for you to genuinely be a friend to someone and to care for them. I mean, you can't even listen well to what they say. Because as soon as they share something with you, you're jumping ahead to the opportunity that you can share this juicy detail with somebody else. You're like, oh, I can't wait to let this one out the bag. It harms you. Making you calloused to the care that people that God has put around you really need. It turns their trials into commodities. To be passed along to every listening ear so you can get the payment of praise for always being in the know. It feel good to know juicy stuff. It feels even better for being the one who always knows the juicy stuff. The gossip kills you, though. It makes you care nothing about other people. The gossip kills a congregation. Nobody feels safe to share anything, nobody feels cared for. So people suffer in silence, love is snuffed out. Christian growth is stunted. You see how that small tongue and its many sins, stains, pollutes your whole body, your whole person? Well, it also stains and pollutes the whole body of Christ. It affects the whole church. Your sin never stays individualized. Your sins of the tongue, your little lie, a little white lie, that that little stretching of truth, that little bit of gossip, that little bit of juice, right? That affects every part of you, and it affects every part of God's people. It sets the whole course of life ablaze. And Satan is standing behind it all with a lighter and a gasoline can. Notice the end of verse 6 says the tongue is set on fire by hell. Satan lives to tempt you to sin, to lead you to destruction. And seeing its power, one of his main targets is the tongue. He loves to let us speak, so long as what you say serves his purposes. So friends, consider that when you use words either face-to-face or via text or a phone call or sharing a post on social media. In whatever situation you're in, know that there's an invisible war going on. There's spiritual warfare, and it's one where your words are meant to be used as weapons. Ask yourself when you're about to speak, whose side will you be fighting for? Maybe you feel like you need to to put somebody in their place for their bad beliefs or their bad behavior. Friends, it is fine and necessary at times to destroy bad arguments. But it is sinful all the time to destroy people with your words. Satan would love for you to boisterously call out someone else's sin. Someone else's views to take them down, to crush them so long So long as in doing so, you yourself sin. And so now there's two sinners in the place of one. You know, Satan is in the business of multiplying disciples too. He wants you to do his will through your usage of the tongue. Yeah, somebody else might be sinning, but you can also sin by the way you address them. Or someone else's views might be whack, might be crazy, but you can sin by the way that you talk to them. Satan don't, long, don't much care in you calling out someone else's stuff. So long as he can add your sin to theirs and get more people to come to his side. Now, that terribly powerful tongue is set on course to do so much evil. Who can restrain it? Nobody. I mean, James says as much. Look at verses 7 and 8 again. He says, every kind of beast and bird, reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. I mean, we do some amazing things. They be having lions doing all tricks and stuff at the circus, right? We can tame all kinds of things, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of poison. It's hopeless, it seems. No human being can tame the tongue. No woman, no man can rein in this rebellious instrument that represents all of our rebellion. Friends, this is the concept that the Bible brings up time and time again of human inability. Dead in sin, we are unable to free ourselves from its power. But thank God that what man cannot do, God can. Amen. No mere human being, no mere man can tame the tongue, but one man. All right. The God man, Jesus Christ, he has. Jesus, the eternal son of God, came to earth and he did what you and me could not do. He lived the kind of righteous, holy life that God requires. The kind of life that glorifies God. Jesus never sinned not even once, with his tongue. Oh, there were opportunities all over the place. I mean, he grew up in a home with sinful people. His younger siblings probably drove him crazy. They surely annoyed him with their jealousy and envy, with their constant debating and babbling, with their constant doubting of him. His parents probably snapped a time or two with their eldest son, perhaps out of anger or frustration, the the kind that builds up in parents' lives as the burdens of life increase and your children become easy targets for your tirades. Yet with everyone else's sin around him in his home, Jesus Christ never responded in sin. He ministered to people who were ungrateful and who complained all the time who took advantage of him, who just used him for what he had to give instead of loving him and wanting him for who he was. He labored with and taught the disciples who were so stubborn and slow of learning, who made so many foolish comments. I mean, think about how stupid Peter was time and time again and some of the stuff he said. He saw Christ's glory on the mountain being transfigured. He was like, let's make a house for everybody here. So many foolish comments, but Jesus never responded by calling them fools. He lived his entire life without sinning with his works. And amazingly, he lived his entire life without sinning with his words. And even though he was blameless, even though he was sinless, he died. He gave his life into the hands of sinful men to suffer and die for sinful men and sinful women. And even as he was crucified, in the most debasing and humiliating of experiences, when they mocked and shamed him, when they stripped him naked, the son of God, when they beat him across the head with a reed, when they uh, struck him in the face, and they slapped him and they spit him, even when he was suffering the most humiliating of experiences, the most painful of experiences, Jesus Christ tamed his tongue. The Bible tells us when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. The end of Matthew says, when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave, No answer. So that Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Speak up for yourself. But he gave him no answer. Not even to a single charge. So that the governor was greatly amazed. Friends, do you want to see real power? (laughs) Real, like, supernatural power? Like, Really, the power to do something is not so much displayed in your freedom to speak. But in your true freedom not to. I can say whatever I want. That ain't powerful. True power, power is shown in not saying whatever you want. I mean, look at Jesus, who had the right to use his words in all kinds of ways to defend himself to threaten, to judge, to criticize and condemn, but instead he mastered his mouth in faithful service to his heavenly father. Jesus lived to the very end a life of conscious obedience to God and total sinlessness in speech for us. He lived That kind of life for us. He suffered and died for us. He rose again for us so that we might turn from our sins and call on him to be saved. And in doing so, receive his spirit so that we too, by his power, might do what naturally we cannot do. Tame our tongues in service to Jesus. Friends, if you hear. And you've got a bad mouth one that's guilty of many or all of the sins of the tongues that we listed earlier, and you can't stop? There's a reason why. You can't stop. Not on your own. You can't simply wash out a bad mouth with soap because your bad mouth is a symptom of a bad heart. Your bad heart needs to be cleaned, only you can't reach deep enough inside to clean it. And even if you could, it's too dirty to be salvaged. What you need is a new heart that's promised in the new covenant that was instituted by Jesus' blood that was shed for all those who turn from their sins and trust in him. The blood that, as we sang earlier, washes away all our sins, even all our sins of speech. And it produces in you this new heart and a new spirit where God Writes His word on your heart, giving you both the desire and the ability to obey it. Oh, oh that tongue is powerful, but what you need is a greater power to rein it in. Well, the power of Christ, and through Him, we can control our speech. Amen. Dear brothers and sisters, I hope that that you know that. I hope that you live like that. We don't have to say what's on our minds. We don't have to respond, to respond to others the way they talk to us. The deadly tongue that once dominated us has been defeated and domesticated so that we can now use our tongues for God-glorifying purposes. We can use our tongues to share the gospel with our children with our neighbors and with our co-workers. We can use our tongues to check in on one another throughout the week. We can use our tongues to to speak a word of scriptural encouragement to a brother or sister who's struggling. We can use our tongues to share our testimonies. We can use our tongues to confess sin to one another, to pray for one another, to talk about the sermon after service, to to thank those who've organized and prepared dishes for the potluck lunch later. Uh. We can turn the power of the tongue to serve positive purposes. One last note before we leave this point. You know, knowing the, the great power of the tongue and our proneness to let it lord over us, I pray it makes us more careful with our words, but also I pray it makes us more compassionate towards others. I mean, consider how often you've fallen in this area of controlling your tongue. And let it move you towards forgiveness to others for how they've sinned against you with their tongues. I wonder, are you holding on to something your spouse said this week that hurt you? That annoyed you? You keep turning it over in your mind like a stone in your hands. You can confront them and tell them about it, but don't keep holding it against them. Kids, maybe it's something your parents have said that shattered you. Or parents, something your children have said that crushed you. It could have been days ago or decades ago. Don't keep holding on to that thing. Maybe it's something another member has said. Or that I've said over your time here at THBC that you've been holding on to and rehearsing day after day, week after week, year after year. And it's made you bitter. You can come and and kindly share that that kind of thing with us, but, but you can also give that thing over to the Lord and forgive. Knowing how incredibly powerful the tongue is to do evil, to say hurtful things and to share unhelpful things, And how demonic powers are at play fueling the tongue doesn't mean we need to excuse all sinful speech but it should cause us to sympathize with others in this area. We know the tongue's power too and how it has led us often to sin with our speech. Listen to this wisdom from Ecclesiastes chapter 1 chapter 7 verses 21 through 22. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, do not take to heart All the things that people say. Lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Pray for others when they sin against you in speech. You know their weakness. You've been there. Don't harbor too much. I can't believe he said that about me. Think about how many times you say that about others. Pray they'd be granted power in Christ to tame the powerful tongue. Constantly pray for yourself that you'd be granted the power to tame that powerful tongue. Because often we still struggle with our tongues. We can be hypocrites with our speech. Which leads to our third and final point we see attention with the tongue's usage. Point number three, attention of the tongue's use. In these closing verses we see James challenge believers to speak like We've been born again by the living God to let the fruit of our tongues show the regenerated root of our hearts. He does so here by calling out our hypocrisy. As you remember back in chapter one, James rebuked believers for being double minded in prayer, torn between God and the world. They were doubting God and thus not getting what they asked for. Well, here James rebukes not double mindedness but double tonguedness Look at verses 9 and 10. James says, with the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. Amen. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Perhaps James is envisioning a setting like the one here today. Here you are this morning, using your mouth to sing God's praises. Saying amen to the prayers and some of the points in the sermon. Maybe even after service you share with someone, the Lord sure is good. But then you hop in the car this afternoon and you get on St. Barnabas Road and somebody darts off in front of you, almost smacking your vehicle that you just paid off. And it ain't two minutes after you left church and you shouting, you jerk. Or something worse. Or or maybe you've had the experience during during the week. You had a sweet time of fellowship with the Lord in the morning. A great quiet time. You ain't read the Bible that much in years. And your prayers were intense. Your calling out to the Lord with yearning was. Surely proof that you are near to him. But just a short time later, you go back upstairs where your spouse and them kids are. And you find that the same tongue you just used to pray for your spouse and your children is being used to condemn that spouse and those children, to criticize them, calling them all kinds of names in this off-the-cuff argument over nothing, really. You bless God, and yet curse people made in God's image. James wants to show us how horribly inconsistent that is. You can't say you love God, but then with your words, destroy those whom God has made. No matter who they are or what they've done, it does not change the fundamental truth that God designed them. They are reflections of his glory, no matter how deeply marred sin has caused that image to be. And because they are designed by God, they are worthy of dignity and respect. So why do you keep using yours to disrespect them? And perhaps we see this kind of re, uh, really clear in the lives of like rappers. I think we talked about this before. They, they receive awards at an awards ceremony, and in their acceptance speech, They praise God with their lips. Even though the album they just received an award for contains thousands of words denigrating women made in God's image, calling them all kinds of bees and disrespectful labels. That sort of thing should bother us. Friends, if you're constantly listening to those kind of lyrics, don't be surprised if you end up emulating their behavior. Are you a cursing Christian? It's a contradictory in terms. Are you you someone who, who can use the religious lingo of the day on today, on Sundays? But what kind of words flow out your mouth in unguarded moments throughout the week? You know, when you don't have to be on. Blessing and cursing should not be present in the Christian's mouth because of who the Christian is, a new person, a new creation with a new nature that should produce good fruit. In verses 11 and 12, James makes the point asking a few rhetorical questions. Can a spring produce both fresh and salt water? The implied answer is no. Can a fig tree produce olives? No, it produces figs. Can a grapevine produce figs? No, it produces grapes. And neither can a salt pond produce fresh water. Well, friends, in the same way, James can ask, can a new heart indwelt by the powerful Holy Spirit produce both holy and unholy words, both blessings and curses? The answer should be no, not on a continual basis, not if you're a genuine Christian. Here then is a closing call to keep a close watch on your life and your tongue. Train your tongue to be consistent. Feed on things that will yield fruitful words. Read more of God's word so that his words would replace your foul words. That his fresh words would pour out of you. And pray for the Lord to restrain your mouth from speaking evil. Ask him to give you eyes to see all people as he sees them. As valuable and ask him to give you a tongue to constantly speak of them as if that's true. That when you see or read about someone whom you naturally be inclined to criticize or demean. A Democrat a Republican, someone wearing a BLM t-shirt or a Make America Great Again cap. Don't rush in with words to blast them based on how you feel about that thing. Slow your words and speak of them based on who they really are. Someone who bears the precious image of God. Saints, we are called to be countercultural. Everybody is using words sinfully. Christians are supposed to speak differently because we are different. We don't belong to the world, we belong to the Lord. And He's left us in this world to represent Him and to show how glorious He is. And one of the main ways we can do that. Is by how we talk. So speak. As if Jesus is big and glorious and all powerful. Because He is powerful enough to tame our powerful tongues. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that greater is He who lives in us than He who lives in the world. Or oh, greater is the work that you've done in our lives, supernaturally by the work of your spirit, that our natural inclinations are to say wicked and unhelpful things. Lord, we pray that we would show the fruits of regenerated lives uh, through faithful, faith-filled words, Lord. Keep us from sinning in speech. Keep us, Lord, from letting loose tirades with our tongues. Help us to reign in our tongues in obedience to Jesus. We pray this in his name and for his glory.